Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm, and welcoming atmosphere. You can get that from this podcast too, in fact. An exceptional experience awaits at the resident city centre locations and from this Whitehall Sources podcast, which starts now. members simply aren't in a position of the feedback that we've had to accept the changes that the companies have put on the table. So the action will go ahead. But if the union leaders to continue to be unreasonable, then it is my duty to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the British public. Welcome to Whitehall Sources, I'm Callum MacDonald, this week with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice, and Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. This week, as we take you behind the door of number 10 Downing Street, strikes are on. Every day between now and Christmas, someone somewhere is on strike. As the government line hardens, how are you feeling about disruption caused by strike action? Plus, you may have noticed it has got a lot colder. The so-called troll from Trondheim means that the heating is firing up across the country. This, surely then, is when the cost of living crisis will become real for so many of us. And with all of that in mind, is this a Christmas that's lacking the traditional wind down for the government? No respite, no easing off. What sort of winter will it be in number 10? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for finding us on Whitehall Sources. Make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. You'll get our weekly episodes delivered straight to you. You can find us on social media as well. Just search Whitehall Sources. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on TikTok, and we're on YouTube as well. And you can email us anytime. We'll be opening the doors to the correspondence unit later on this episode. But you can email with your thoughts, your analysis, whether you agree or disagree. The inbox is always open and the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Welcome to Whitehall Sources this week with Kirsty Buchanan and Callum McDonald. Hello. 
Um, first of all, an apology from me for being a little bit uh, husky and hoarse. <laughs> it's called a hangover. It's, <laughs> it's called the Times and Sunday Times and Times Radio Christmas Party, which was last night. Um, and I mean, it was just in a very loud place. That's why my voice sounds like it, mm-hmm. it does. It was very loud, Kirsty. Okay, you know, I, had, I was doing all the speaking, all the hobnobbing. I, meantime, have caught your cold, so <laughs> uh, I that. now sound legit husky <laughs> and kind of hoarse for genuine sick reasons opposed to self-imposed <laughs> alcohol toxicity reasons. So for, for listeners only, um, we're, all, we're in cosy jumpers. <laughs> we're hiding from the negative degrees Celsius temperatures outside and trying to just nurse ourselves back to full health. That's and good. I've got that classic kind of, I've got the convector heater on in one room and the rest of the house is <laughs> yeah. like the frozen tundra, right? But right in here, it's so hot. You know, it's like huge baking on the on the work surface. Yeah. So yes, welcome to the podcast. Welcome in. Um, feel free to use a blanket, turn, you know, get the fire cranked up, whatever it is that makes you feel cosy today. Uh, and just by way of intimations and announcements, uh, we should say that our beloved Oscar Reddrop has been called away to a, a full-time and well-paid <laughs> uh, job, which will mean that he will no longer be able to join us on our podcast on thir- well, we record on Thursday mornings. So he might be able to drop in from time to time, perhaps. But for the time being, thank you very much to Oscar, who was with us solidly while we got up and running on Whitehall Sources, which was wonderful. And arguably is the biggest cheerleader of Boris Johnson I've ever come across. I'm not entirely sure arguably is even unquestionably, I think, is probably <laughs> the word we're, the word we're looking for. Yeah. So thank you, Oscar. Um, and we will in the in the sort of in the tradition of all great governments and all terrible governments also, actually, next week we will push a bit of a reset button and we'll have more news on that for you on next week's episode. Um, but yes, all the best to Oscar. It's a shame, actually, I had two feature ideas around his name that we've never been able to do. One was the Oscars. Uh, where we would get him to simply dish out awards for various things. And the other was a red drop in the ocean. But I'm not quite... Well, yeah, as with all best features, you come up with a name first, then try to work out what on earth to do with it afterwards, which I never did with that one. I will still be getting his I Heart Chris Mason (laughs) T-shirt for Oscar for Christmas. That's a great shout. Uh, Right, good. On today's episode then, with Kirsty and myself, we're going to consider strikes which are ongoing. We're now in the phase where... Someone and some group are on strike every day until Christmas. Also, it is cold outside, and while we laugh about being in our cosy jumpers today, there is a serious side to that, obviously, in the midst of the cost of living crisis. And it's the long farewell to Matt Hancock as well. He's finally been voted out of the Commons after being made to eat more than his fair share of crap on government benches. He, and indeed in the jungle, but he's on his way out as an MP. Uh, first of all, though, Kirsty, I want to sort of understand where we are in terms of the, I suppose, the political year. As we approach Christmas, there is, I think, one Prime Minister's questions left. And it just gives a bit of an idea, a bit of a feeling that we're working towards the end of the year, which to my mind suggests a bit of a winding down. But actually, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of really important stuff on the go. Yeah, I mean, as ever, um, there doesn't seem to be much winding down to be had, really, does there? I mean, what normally happens at this time of year, in you know, in in the days when we had normal politics, <laughs> as opposed to uh, what is a collective noun for swans? Because someone was talking about black swan events the other day, which are yeah. unprecedented and unexpected events, and we've not had one 
black swan. We've had an entire flock over the last sort of three <laughs> or four years, haven't we? Um, uh, but I'm not sure a flock of swans pa- is quite right. Apparently so. when they're in flight, it's a wedge. A wedge oh, of swans oh, when wedge. they're in flight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've had a complete wedge of black swans. That sounds really random and very wrong. But there we go. Um, so anyway, again, I have lost my train of thought because I'm now stuck with wedges of swans. Um, but, yeah, now what normally happens in politics is that at this time of year, everybody in Westminster is exhausted and you are kind of crawling towards end of term on your hands and knees. Uh, I would have thought after the year that Westminster's had, everyone is doubly exhausted, still crawling on their hands and knees. But nevertheless, I'd be very surprised if anybody at number 10 gets anything much of a holiday because actually, you know, the in-tray, which was horrific, uh, when this government came in, it's just has just got considerably worse, and I think there is a, a growing demand on the government for what we like to call the get a grip factor. You know, this sense that they're on the back foot with with strike actions. We're seeing, you know, a ballooning of strike actions. We've had border force now going, you know, announcing that they'll go out on top of ambulance workers and nurses, and uh, you know, so we've got civil service strikes, we've got teacher strikes in Scotland, and obviously we've got the rail workers. And the postal workers, and I think there's a sense that, that actually the government needs to work harder to get on the front foot of this and and move to try and curtail this and stop it from coming. Look, it's not a general strike. A general mm. strike is a coordinated strike action, but I wouldn't like to live on the difference on this. And I got up this morning probably about the same time as you came home, <laughs> uh, Callum, uh, and I was reading the front pages of the paper and I just... I just wanted to get back under the duvet and pull out, you know, pull the duvet. I mean, it's so depressing, know. you know. Everything is really, really expensive. Nothing works and everybody's out on strike. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just looking through the front pages of this morning's papers just to get an idea of, of the vibe. Uh, it's beginning to look a lot like a Christmas general strike, suggests the Daily Mail. Christmas flights hit by airport walkout, says the Times. The Telegraph army fury as soldiers are ordered to give up Christmas over strikes. The Mirror, Hancock, get me out of here. Uh, Hancock forced to quit, says the eye. Gove ignores climate warnings to approve first coal mine in 30 years. And if this isn't a sign of things not winding down, this announcement last night from the levelling up secretary Michael Gove, um, Britain's first new coal mine for three decades in Cumbria to provide 500 jobs. Obviously, there are kind of uh, criticisms on the kind of environmental credentials of this, but in terms of a, uh, the government's in trade to do list and what it's doing, that's a huge announcement. It is a huge announcement. I mean, I, I wonder whether they tried to kind of mitigate it by the onshore wind announcement. Look, here we're doing something great for the climate and don't look over here in Cumbria. <laughs> yeah. um, although, to be fair, I think one one transitional coal mine is hardly going to topple our net zero uh, ambitions. But, but, but in essence, look, I mean, it, it's one of those classic ones where the reality and the perception are two different things. The reality is, you know, it's actually quite popular locally. It, was a, it wasn't imposed on the community by the government. It was approved by the council and then a planning inspector and then by Michael Gove. Uh, it creates 500 jobs and a, and a thousand more, a couple of thousand more in terms of supply chain and construction and what have you. So it's a good news story locally. Uh, but obviously what it sends out in terms of signalling and, and, and values is you know, it allows people to question the government's commitment to net zero, which, uh, look, I don't think is, you know, personally, I don't think is fair. Um, I don't think a single transitional coal mine that is there for a race-specific reason uh, is going to have much of an impact on on that. 
Um, and incidentally, nor do I think the onshore wind farms were either. So there was a lot of uh, politicking around. Uh, we have an effective ban on onshore wind farms in England. We, there isn't one in Scotland and Wales. Uh, and obviously the government this week confirmed it was going to U-turn and allow uh, onshore wind farms to be built where there was local approval. Look, the reality is in England, you know, that's not going to be, you know, you're not going to see a great big peppering of our green and pleasant land because actually most of England ain't that windy. Um, and until we develop long, you know, long storage, uh, long duration energy storage to uh, on, a, on a scale where you can, you know, trap, harness and store that wind, then there's no point building it down south where it isn't that windy. So the majority of them will still be obviously offshore in Scotland and in Wales where it's a, a good deal windier, as you can probably testify to, <laughs> I can. It's where hairstyles <laughs> go to die. God, could you imagine why I'd be permanently windswept and interesting, wouldn't I? Exactly, that's what I always say. What is, I mean, what is fascinating, I have to say, just to input a bit on the old, um, on the old wind farm front, because it is a big, they are big, a big deal where where I'm from and where my family are in the Western Isles, particularly. I think what is often the case is there is, there is so much uh, potential energy. Clearly, as you say, it's a windy place, but often the benefits of these wind farms, which can be huge in terms of financial benefits, obviously the energy inputs as well, they often bypass the communities where they are constructed or the communities that will be, quote-unquote, affected by the construction of, a, of wind turbines and wind farms. And often the financial rewards bypass them, go to the big companies, and that can often be a really bitter pill to swallow, actually, because you kind of you feel like you're taking the hit in a way. You're happy to take the hit in lots of ways, but actually, it can it can feel quite unrewarding. Yeah, and no, and, and this is the key component on this for me. I think you've seen, you know, look, onshore wind farm is the by far and away the cheapest form of energy that you can you can produce in this country by a country mile. Um, but that has got to have some benefits for people for whom you know these these turbines overshadow their communities. So actually the key component uh, in this change in law around onshore wind farms is precisely this. The communities themselves have the capacity to say yay or nay to these. Now, any community is going to say, okay, we will consider this if there is a direct uh, benefit to our community. So if you take X amount of our, our, of our, our home bills, then then you can have the consent that you seek. And that's that will be a matter for the developers and the communities. And actually, all polls suggest that the public are enormously uh, supportive of onshore wind farms, of solar farms, etc. If, uh, you know, if they can see some direct benefits to it, if they can get cuts in their bills in the middle of a cost of living crisis, when we've got, you know, minus 10 degree Arctic snaps called the troll of Trondheim <laughs> coming to us, you know. Absolutely, it's a great idea. I do, you know, we do a lot of focus groups at Stonehaven, and you know, one guy said to me, said in one of these focus groups, and it made me laugh at the time. Said, "Look, you can slap solar solar panels all over my house for all I care, as long as you, you know, I get the benefit of it. As yeah. long as you cut my bills, and fair enough." Absolutely, makes total total sense. Of course, you'd want to see the benefits of it. So yeah, that's that's really notable actually. Those two kind of energy related announcements this week, and you mentioned you mentioned the weather and the really cold temperature now. We're, this is Thursday, the 8th of December's episode. It took me until the 3rd of December, so what, five days ago before I put the heating on in the flat, to manage to hold out that long. But it has got cold this week. And while we always love talking about the weather and <laughs> the troll from Trondheim, as apparently it's been called, which is bonkers, 
there, there is a, this is, this, now, is another pinch moment for people. Their finances, their energy bills, the cost of living, and it, within all of that, it's one of those moments where politics becomes real again, because you either look and say, I'm getting the help I need, or, oh my goodness, I actually need a lot more help than this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can make a lot of jokes about it all feeling very 1970s, you know, we've got you know, mass strikes and, uh, you know, we might very well have blackouts. I mean, you know, we've got the prospect of, of you know, very high heating bills, even allowing for the government's massive support package for every household in this country. Uh, you're still going to have extraordinarily high bills this winter. I know a lot of people are very frightened about this you know you know or you know I was talking to my mother the other day and she said well you know I'm sat here in a you know a hat and you know woolly gloves and scarves and all this sort of stuff and I said look you know it just you know heat your home mum and worry about you know I will help you with the payment if I need be I don't want you to sit there and you know and so actually and you forget this you know, elderly and vulnerable people die from the cold every single winter, every single winter, regardless of, you know, even before you get, you know, the extraordinary situation we're in now uh, and the general levels, you know, justifiable levels of fear about it. And, you know, I was reading about, uh, it was a, there was a brilliant article in the paper yesterday and I was reading about, you know, what might help in terms of preventing blackouts if we have a very cold snap that runs through not just December, but January and February, you know, normally we rely on a couple of things that, you know, even in lean times that, 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 that are questionable at the moment, one of which is, you know, supply from, from Europe. We get quite a lot of our supply from France. Well, and France sits there and goes, ha-ha, with our 40 nuclear power stations, and uh, which is, a, you know, a salutary lesson to us all. But, you know, it turns out on closer reading that half of those are close to, Close for maintenance at the moment because they're quite old. Um, so you know, there's every chance that, uh, that that we might not get the supply that we normally do, and we might see some blackouts. Now they're more likely to affect, you know, production. You might get industries that are going to three or four day weeks and what have you, rather than sort of sitting there in the dark reading with you know candlelight and what have you. But uh, but but it's the mood music of it. It's what it creates for people. So. You know, we're we're a nation already sort of traumatized by two years of a pandemic, and now we're a nation traumatized by by the fear of our own bills. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a situation to be in. I mean, I you know, I am sat here with a convector heater on. I have a you know a, a good and healthy salary, but you know, I'm feeling the pinch of it. I'm mm. a single mother with two kids. I looked at the Christmas, you know, thought about Christmas tree the other day and thought, you know, my kids are teenagers now, do I really need to waste £35 on a Christmas tree and slung some lights up on a pot plant, right? <laughs> thought that'll do. But, you know, if yeah. you know, if someone with a, you know, with a good, strong salary like me is beginning to think, mm, and making, you know, budget choices, et cetera, can you imagine people on a fixed income or on benefits? It's genuine levels of fear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that perhaps feeds in then, let's sort of drill down a bit on strikes because we're kind of, we're, we're covering off just how busy a winter it is for the government. And and strikes, as we say, continue. The, the, the sort of bread, the scale of these strikes in the coming weeks is going to present huge problems for the government. You've mentioned, um, ticked off some of the some of the sectors that will be affected, health workers, transport staff, border force staff, uh, train, various bits of train operations, whether it's drivers or managers or whatever, it is going to be quite a, a chaotic few weeks. Is is the government line on strikes 
changing? Is it evolving? Is it hardening? What What's the kind of government's approach here? It's it's very interesting, isn't it? How much it has uh, the, the 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 tone has hardened, um, and there has clearly been, I suspect, some focus groups mm. going on. All of a sudden, this word reasonable and reasonableness has started to populate the vocabulary of the government lines to take. Uh, and I think this speaks to a wider truth here, right? And 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 this is on both sides. This is not, you know, villains on one side or evil, you know, malign forces on the other. This is a perfectly understandable desperate action by, you know, by tens of thousands of public sector workers who uh, are genuinely feeling the struggle and the squeeze like like all of us. Um, and, you know, and in many cases are really desperate or really worried about, you know, whether they, you know, whether they can afford to feed their families and heat their homes. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible state of affairs. It's entirely understandable. And I don't think anybody, um, you know, has any kind of, you know, can have anything but sympathy for nurses, you know, for, you know, for, for low paid workers who, who want to take this action. On the other hand, we have a government who says, look, you know, we have a post-pandemic massive debt, which is needs to be serviced to the tune of, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds a week. That is money that, unless we get that debt down, isn't going into public services, isn't going into the front line. We have a post-pandemic surge in inflation, which is not just a unique problem to Britain. It's felt right across the world because we have a supply-side crisis. And so we need to squeeze out inflation because if we don't do that, the recession that the whole of the world is now heading for will be deeper and longer in Britain, which will again make things harder for all workers. So we need to be fair and balanced. We need to have a deal that is fair to hardworking people who have a perfectly justified uh, call on on you know on a, on a pay increase in a cost of living crisis. But we also need to be fair to the public finances, to the taxpayers, to all of us, because, you know, the situation in terms of the economic uh, crisis that we're also in is absolutely parlous. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of tough language about strike action. But on the other hand, you've got this. What underpins this is, look, be fair, be reasonable. Asking for inflation busting pay rises right now will only surge and fuel inflation, which will make things you know, far worse for all of us in the long run. So it's it's a kind of, uh, it's an interesting kind of uh, balancing act. You see, you know, this, this talks about new legislation coming in. Where I do slightly have a problem with the government on this um, is, look, I'm old enough to remember a transport secretary from like, you know, two, two transport secretaries ago, <laughs> a guy called Grant Shatt. Yes. Uh, I think he's in business now. Um, and, you know, this was in the summer. This was in the summer, and he was talking about tightening legislation around strike action in relation to uh, what was then just the RMT strikes. But but these strikes haven't, like, popped out of the ether and, and come as a great surprise to the, to, to the country. They have been, you know, long anticipated, you know, were expected... Uh, in the summer and the autumn, even in the summer, I can remember listening to Grant Chapter in interviews being criticised for delays mm -hmm. in tightening union legislation and strike law legislation, which was promised back in 2019. How have we got to a state 
where we are still to enact tighter legislation which would help mitigate some of the impact of these mass strikes, and that won't now come until January at the earliest, when this was promised in 2019, was was pulled up about in July. Everybody knew these strikes were coming. And the reason we're here is because the Conservative government spent most of the last few months fighting itself in a circling firing squad rather than getting on with the business of government. And so I have a slight kind of annoyance factor about that because actually some of this legislation should have been in already and some of this should have been mitigated uh, with minimum service levels and some of the things we're now being told again and being promised again that might come in. Is some of this legislation that's being thrown around that you mention, is act, is this a negotiating tactic too, though? Is that why it's coming in at, or, or being talked about at this point? No, I don't think it's a negotiation, and nor do I think it's political posturing. Mm. I think there is a realisation here that, that, that actually the strikes that we're seeing, you know, right now, there's every likelihood that these won't go away. You know, we're not going to swerve out of a cost of living crisis or an energy crisis anytime soon. We're in for a couple, if we're lucky, of very, very tricky years. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the reasonableness points is about one of the primary purposes of government is to keep people safe. Now, if you have, you know, ambulance workers out on strike... And I, you know, God forbid something happens to someone in my family on the 21st of December and I can't prove that it's, you know, life-threatening, I will not get an ambulance. Um, And, uh, you know, there are many conditions for whom, you know, if you have to wait a long time for an ambulance, that itself doesn't start as a life-threatening problem but, but might very well become one. So, so actually, you know, if one of your purposes is to protect the public, then you need to start looking at whether you need what they call minimum service levels, even on strike days, for the basic premise of protecting the public. That's why things like, you know, uh, police officers aren't allowed to go on strike. That's why uh, prison officers aren't allowed to go on strike. And they're looking at whether to bring in these levels for other sectors as well, including kind of firefighters and ambulance workers, because it's about public protection. Yeah. Really fascinating to keep uh, keep across. I was just looking at a chart that blocks off all the... It's like a calendar, and each each day there's a strike. It tells you what, who it is and, and when it is and who it will be affecting, and it's just going to be... I, I was looking at it. It's like the worst advent calendar yeah, ever, that's isn't right. it? Exactly. That's exactly... <laughs> Every day you open the new door, oh, there's three strikes today, isn't it? <laughs> that is exactly it. Uh, it's really fascinating, actually. Uh, keen to get your thoughts. Why don't you be our focus group on this, on, on the strike action? Um, and we'll read these out in the correspondence unit next week. We will read some of your emails shortly. But email now for next week's episode. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address. What, where are you, are you, are you taking a hardening, is your stance on strikes hardening in the same way as the government is? Is that where you are at with this? I wonder. Uh, drop us an email, hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. So we were talking about, you know, strike action, you know, f- for organisations for whom it is illegal mm. under the law. And of course, I used to work at the Ministry of Justice um, and I got woken up at two or three o'clock one morning by a phone call for the duty press officer. Um, Big up, George, if you're listening. Um, And she said, look, I'm really sorry to ring you. She said, I didn't know whether to ring you or not. She said, but I've been tipped off that the prison officers are about to go out on strike. Um, And tired as I was, (laughs) I said, well, they can't. It's, you know, it's illegal. And she went, well, precisely. 
And uh, she said, and I, you know, uh, I, I didn't know. And I said, look, you did completely the right thing by ringing me. Um, uh, I will ring the, the prison's minister and he will get the right officials. And if you can head into the office and I'll, and I'll see you there. Anyway, so then I ring the prison officer, uh, uh, prison, uh, prison's minister. I was delighted to be rung that time. <laughs> I'm morning, sure. You can imagine. Uh, actually, no, he was fine. Uh, and then to cut to four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning, we're all in the office. Um, and because we kind of, this is the point about front-footed and back-footed in government, because we kind of had the jump on this because we had a tip and we were in at that time in the morning, A, we got all our press lines ready to go, so they were ready first thing in the morning and we had a line to go straight into the broadcast at 6am. Um, but more importantly, we had the lawyers in to draft an injunction. So, uh, you know, no sooner did their, you know, their, their, their boots hit the outside ground, if you like, them, and the courts opened, then we went to court to seek an injunction to, to force them back to work because it is illegal. And I think it was all over by lunchtime. But wow. having said all that, you know, at the same time as we were doing all that, we had enormous sympathy for the prison officers. I mean, at the time that they went out and strike, they went out in protest over the excessive levels of violence in their workplace. They were There was record levels of violence in the workplace. There were... There was a flood of of um, what we used to call legal highs. They've been you know they've been made illegal since then. But things like um, you know spice and mambo, which are cheap and awful drugs, which send people psychotic, and it was extremely dangerous to be a prison officer. And you think um, you know for this salary to go to to work every day and you know risk life and limb. And so it wasn't that you know it isn't that people in government don't have enormous sympathy for it, but. But you know, ultimately, it is it is a public protection issue, and we had no choice but to but to act. That's really fascinating, and actually, just to hear that there is authentic sympathy for those who are on strike is actually perhaps something that that doesn't necessarily cut across in current discussions. While there are lines, and there is you know there is rhetoric around. Oh, of course, we understand. You think is that just is that just a line? But actually, I suppose because everybody is in the same storm, albeit in different boats in the cost of living crisis, actually to hear that there is probably authentic feeling of we get, we do get this. We I mean, I would, I would advocate if anybody wants a, a, not an easy read, I'm not pretending it's a breezy read, but David Goodhart, who is a, uh, who is a great thinker and, a, um, and quite influential sort of with, with government wrote a book called, uh, head, hand and heart. Uh, and in essence, uh, I might be doing him a huge disservice with my tiny blurb, um, <laughs> but, but but in essence, what it is about is is how society has 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 overvalued cognitive skills. Mm. I think this was in part fueled, I think, by by Labour's. I mean, look, I understand the rationale behind saying fifty percent of people should go to university, but actually, it only fueled this kind of disproportionate value that society places on kind of cognitive skills as opposed to other skills. And that we need a rebalance and we need to re, you know, we need to better remunerate and better value as a society people that, that work with their hands, I know, skilled manufacturing, you know, skilled engineering, people that make things and fix things. And also we need to, you know, better value and better remunerate people that, that work in the caring professions, in, in health, uh, you know, and, and, and in social care. Because ultimately what the pandemic taught us, amongst many other things, is that, you know, the people that stepped up and kept the country going, you know, weren't people like me, you know, sitting chatting podcasts. They were, you know, they were care workers and health workers and rail workers and all the people that are, you know, out on strike now. Yeah. So, 
so I think, you know, look, I, and I think both these things can be true at the same time. I think there is an issue here about we simply cannot afford inflation-busting pay rises for people, no matter how much we sympathise, no matter how much we want to, we simply cannot afford to. But look, if I ruled the world right now, um, you know, this will come to a negotiated settlement, but I think at the end of it, what I would like to see is a pay commission where we sit down and we have a proper discussion about how we remunerate frontline public sector workers who, for whom, you know, I've always thought, you know, the, the value that they have to society, the work that they do and that they pay that they get seems to me completely out of all proportion, right? So, you know, let's find a way of having a, you know, a reset on, on how we pay them because otherwise this isn't going to go away. We've got a labour shortage. We've got people leaving the health and care professions uh, in their droves. And who would, I mean, I don't know if you've ever... Have you ever been to an A&E on a Saturday night? Callum, that, I mercifully, I have not. But I, uh, well, good. I'm glad yeah. you haven't. I wouldn't recommend it. No. It's a terrifying experience. Yeah. And the thing that, I mean, an A&E on a Saturday night, and I don't scare easy. I was actually quite frightened, really? you know, because it's full of drunks and people on drugs and like a gang member sat next to me for half a you know, for a few hours with a stab wound in his head and all his mates came in and squeezed it and had a look. And, oh, you know. But what the thing that struck me the most was the levels of abuse that the nurses got. A, just the levels of it and the fact that they didn't even blink because it must be so ordinary to them to be subjected to the most foul and abusive language and there were police officers permanently in the A&E. And I just remember thinking, you know, as ill as I was, and believe you me, I was really, otherwise I would have left A&E on a Saturday night in Whitechapel. Uh, but as ill as I, I just thought, how extraordinary that your your average day, you are subjected to such levels of abuse that it barely even, you know, and I'm sure they go home and cry about that. But that's the sort of thing that would traumatise me, you know, if it happened on one day, let alone kind of day in, day out. And how do we pay them? Mm. We all stand on, you know, we stand there on a Thursday night doing the pandemic and clap them. Yeah. Let's actually have a proper pay commission about how we how we pay public sector workers, because to me it seems completely out of out of kilter. Email your thoughts. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address to get in touch with us. Particularly on strikes then, as we enter this period of, of continual strikes every day, there'll be different people out on strike. What do you think? Have you got sympathy? Uh, how are you feeling about it? Is it going to bother you, affect you? Maybe you couldn't care less. I don't know. Email hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. When we come back, we will open the door to the correspondence unit and we'll be discussing everyone's favourite. I'm a celebrity star, Matt Hancock. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked. Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The Resident Hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. 
Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver, as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going. The staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall sources possible. This is Whitehall Sources this week with Kirsty Buchanan and Callum McDonald. Uh, lots of exciting news to come next week as we bid farewell to Oscar and we, well, we enter Whitehall Sources 2.0. But enough about that for now, enough about that for now. Let's open the door to the correspondence unit. <laughs> it's not going away. It's never going away. Uh, thank you for your emails. We love to get these. Thank you, thank you very much. And your comments as well on TikTok and on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, first of all, uh, some praise for us because we like to read out your compliments. It's very nice. Uh, Paul says, just wanted to say, I really enjoy the podcast. It's true that you're up there in quality terms with the better known podcast from washed up spin doctors and failed Tory leadership contenders. <laughs> Which is nice. That's a very subtle burn. Uh, <laughs> Which, Ouch! Yeah, I know. Uh, sorry, uh, Alistair and Rory, as I like to, you know, I'm on, I feel like I'm on first name terms with them. Uh, so yes, thanks for that. Uh, Kishan next says, hello, I've been listening to Whitehall Sources since the first episode. You have Political's London playbook to thank for that. Well, yes, indeed. Thank you, Political. Uh, at first, I was somewhat suspicious of adding it to my weekend podcast playlist, but it has grown on me over the weeks. In particular, the most recent podcast with Kirsty and Frankie. I found had a good balance of light-hearted banter and serious discussion, as well as your USP of insider accounts. Hmm, what fascinating feedback, Kishan. Uh, we'll take that on board. Uh, Lynn, meantime, says, Hi, Callum. Uh, I wonder if Frankie actually watched I'm a Celebrity. If she thinks Hancock was either funny or contrite, he was neither, in my opinion. His declaration that he was looking for forgiveness was about as sincere as his mock tears when talking about the vaccine rollout on TV. I don't think the public cares about his affair. The disgrace is going on a telly game show so, so soon after the shocking COVID record of that government, says Lynn. Um, notable because Matt Hancock is going to stand down for the next election now. We've had confirmation this week, Kirsty. So, I don't know, as, as I'm a celebrity put paid to his political ambitions. I'm trying to understand the strategy. Yeah, he's uh, he's stepping down to spend more time with his light entertainment career. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not entirely sure whether he jumped or he was pushed from mm. what I can read in the papers. It seems to be that the, uh, is it West Suffolk Conservative Association, Association yeah. uh, think uh, that he's not fit to serve the good folk of, of, of West Suffolk. Um, so off he pops. I mean, look, I think he would have gone anyway. There's clearly a kind of uh, PR strategy uh, to be had there. And, I, I, you know, I think the only thing to remark about with him is whether he pops up on Mask Singer first or, or strictly in a kind of John Sargent, but without the, uh, you know, without the lovability for some people. I, look, I don't know. To spend, um, to spend more time with his light entertainment career. <laughs> It's an excellent uh, line. Why, thank you. Um, uh, so yeah, look, I mean, I it was inevitable, was it? Was it not? Um, and just part of a what for Rishi Sunak might be quite an alarming kind of exodus of of MPs uh, mm. at the next election. Some of whom are very young, um, and uh, well, not that I'm trying to imply that Matt Hancock's some <laughs> uh, old old fella over the hill. Uh, 
Um, but you know, some who are extremely young, but I just think they, you know, it just feeds into that kind of whole fagendery of of a yeah. government, which just feeds into a mood music, which just isn't very helpful for mm. for the Conservative government. Really interesting. I want to do this email from Daniel as well, uh, which was just reflecting on last week where we considered honeymoons in politics and whether or not Rishi Sunak had one, whether they are a real concept. Frankie was really interesting on the idea that Jeremy Corbyn never got one because the press hated him, basically, or, or elements of the press were really going for him. Uh, Dan says, Surely it would be naive for any journalist to Pontius Pilate on politicians' reputations Editorial choices are made, platforming choices are made, even in the choices of which callers to take on a radio talk show. There will be implicit, and probably explicit, biases at play. The Matt Hancock jungle experience is a great example of this, says Dan. Many of us in the Westminster bubble expected him to tank because his reputation was truly shot previously, even outside of the bubble. However, during his time on the jungle, and in the jungle, he had considerably more editorial control over the talking points related to him, which is an interesting thought. And as we saw, the public don't seem to mind him, even if they thought he was a bit beige. Um, I think that the repeated rehabilitation through non-political media engagement shows what a specific lens a political journalist is. And it also shows what power uh, the tributaries from political journalists to front pages have. It's not a total power, but it would be foolish to ignore. Great episode, says Dan. Love the guests challenging each other with respect and camaraderie. Um, so there you are, Kirsty Comrade. Um, there's a thought from Dan on a quite, it's quite a well-considered thought, actually, on, on tying together basically everything we discussed last week, which is really notable, on uh, sort of the press treatment of politicians, Hancock's strategy in the jungle, and just that, uh, that idea that, that sticks with me, the specific lens that political journalism kind of takes on things, I suppose. Yeah, um, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, insightful uh, uh, contribution. I, I mean... I think this is some of, to tie it back to Jeremy Corbyn, I think this is some of the reason that, you know, that the whole kind of Corbyn project issued the mainstream media because it has a filtering lens, mm. uh, because there was a perception that he was never going to get a fair ride from it and because uh, social media being what it is, he didn't need to. He could uh, talk directly to the people and whilst Frankie might well be right in that he didn't get a honeymoon from the mainstream press. This was the same Jeremy Corbyn that stood on the main stage at Glastonbury with the entire crowd of Glastonbury, you know, belting out, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. So he could get his message out. He could get it to the people that wanted to hear it. And there was a huge section of society that absolutely adored him for it. You know, there was for a long time, he was magic grandpa, right? So, you know, uh, and all the things that, you think shouldn't work in a modern society, you know, did for him mm. because he was honest and authentic and, you know, and, and spoke to a truth that a lot of people wanted to hear. It's not for everybody, but a lot of people wanted to hear it. So uh, you don't have to now, um, but I think that people that think that, you know, the impact and the power of, of the media... Uh, is over if because of social media. I think that's for the birds. And, mm, and again and again and again, we are reminded that the world is not Twitter. I mean, the yeah. Hancock thing is a classic example of it, right? The world is not Twitter. And actually, you know, if you look at public polling around strike action, um, you know, there is, for now, you know, quite a hardened position against strike action because of its impact on people over Christmas because they don't think it's fair and reasonable. 
now, whether that sort of ends up as a kind of plague on both your houses because of this grip factor, we shall see. Mm. Um, but you know, the world is not you know the world is not through one lens anymore. It's through a number, and I think the only question we have is you know which set of glasses we pick up to to view the world, right? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for your considered contributions. You can email anytime. Uh, we'll read them as part of next week's episode. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Um, and all that's really left to do on the correspondence unit is, of course, to close the door. There we go. Uh, Kirsty, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> it's been lovely to speak to you. It's been lovely to, um, to wake up this morning and engage my brain. That's been a real treat. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, Kirsty Buchanan will be back with us next week and we will have more news on what Whitehall Sources 2.0 will sound like and look like for you as well do keep in touch through the week you can email hello at whitehallsources.com make sure you follow and subscribe as well so you get all of our future episodes and you can find us on social media we're on Twitter, we're on TikTok, we're on Instagram just search for Whitehall Sources and you can keep in touch there uh, until next week, have a good one and we will speak to you then